Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we are joined once again by one of our CJS delegates and former CJS chairs, Steve Salzberg. Steve, welcome. Thank you for joining us again. Oh, I'm glad to be here. It's always kind of nice to look over what the House of Delegates has done shortly after we had a meeting. Yeah, very valuable to update our listeners and our section on how that went. So thank you again, Steve. Now, before we jump into our report, let me first provide your current bio. Steve Salzberg is the Wallace and Beverly Woodbury University Professor and Co-Director of the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program at George Washington University School of Law. Okay, so as we just said, Steve is joining us again to provide a report on the mid-year House of Delegates and any resolutions that CJS sponsored or supported. So Steve, As usual, we'll go through these resolutions in numerical order, and we ask you to please provide us with the background of the resolution and then how it was received at the House of Delegates. So we'll begin with Resolution 501, which speaks to accommodations for lactating individuals. So go ahead, Steve. Well, that's exactly right. This resolution was put forward by the Young Lawyers Division and the Commission on women in the profession. And it addressed bar admissions authorities, law schools, bar associations, and legal employers, and urged that all of these entities adopt clear and uniform policies allowing for accommodations for lactating individuals. So the idea here is to enable women who are either breastfeeding or pumping to be able to go to work, take bar exams, go to law school without sacrificing essentially motherhood. It enables them to be able to enable their babies to avail themselves of breast milk, either by breastfeeding or by having the mother's pump and the babies get the milk later. And it's a very important, I think, resolution that is directed at equal protection in the workplace. That is making sure we do what we can so that women who want to return to work but have recently given birth can can do so. Right. Thank you. And this actually builds on past policy that CJS had supported as well. Isn't that right, Steve? We've been very supportive here, and this continues our support for policies that support women in the workplace. Yeah. Then how was this received by the House of Delegates? It was approved it probably was unanimous. Sometimes it's a little hard to tell in a virtual meeting. I can't remember whether they announced the vote, but it clearly passed overwhelmingly. That's great. Happy to hear that. And yeah, we did forget to mention that due to Omicron, the mid-year meeting was converted to a virtual meeting, where it was originally planned that you would all be in Seattle for this meeting. Now, moving on to Resolution 604, this one speaks to issues around youth homelessness. So would you tell us about that, Steve? Yeah, this is a resolution that was co-sponsored by four different parts of the American Bar Association. 
The Commission on Homelessness and Poverty was one. The section of Civil Rights and Social Justice was the second. Criminal Justice section was the third. The section of Litigation was the fourth. This resolution encourages governments at all levels to redesign their policies and repurpose the way in which they spend money to prevent youth homelessness. And it urges these government entities to adopt a variety of best practices that are recommended in the report that accompanies the resolution. In resolution encourages the judiciary to recognize and remove legal barriers to housing stability. It also encourages bar associations and individual attorneys to review model state statutes to facilitate an understanding of the legal needs and structures related to youth homelessness. And what was the response at the House of Delegates? This was revised right before the meeting. It happens very often, and it was overwhelmingly approved. That's great. And I love it when we have a chance to see the different entities within the ABA working together and collaborating on policy like this. It just is a nice demonstration of what can be accomplished, you know, for our listeners when they think of how they might engage and, and how they can work within the section to address or recommend policy that they're interested in, knowing that even if it goes a little outside of just criminal justice, that there are these other entities that we could partner with. So a wonderful example of that. Well, then let's move on to resolution 613. And this one is speaking to representation of youth at court. So why don't you tell us about that? Well, this resolution was adopted by a host of entities in the American Bar Association, beginning with the Commission on Youth at Risk, including the Commission on Disability Rights, the Commission on Domestic and Sexual Violence, the Commission on Homelessness and Poverty, Criminal Justice Section, Section of Civil Rights and Social Justice, and the Section of Litigation. And this resolution urges the adoption of laws that establish a legal presumption that children who are involved in dependency, that is child welfare cases, are present and actively engaged in their own court proceedings, unless a child in consultation with counsel has waived the right to be present. The resolution makes clear that in these child welfare proceedings, it is very, very important for the deciding officer to be able to hear from a child, to understand what that child's needs, interests, goals are, and to hear it in the child's own voice, to recognize that not every child needs the same answer to how best to treat this child. And the presence of the child and the ability of the child to speak is really important. In the resolution, we don't want conflicts, say, transportation issues or conflicts with school schedules to stand in the way of a child being in court and being heard. Now, in this COVID era we're in, it may be that that presence may be by Zoom or some other way of making the child as present as everybody else in the proceeding. But the hope is that as we move beyond COVID or hope we do, that this will be physically present children. Sure. And so, Steve, if I could just ask for a little bit of more background. Um, it sounds to me like what you were saying is that 
in the past, or at least currently, that there are conflicts of schedules or transportation or other reasons are keeping children from being an active voice in these proceedings. No, you're exactly right. And in some courts, the courts just didn't deem it that important to have the child there as long as the child had a lawyer there. But this resolution says it's really important for the child to have a voice, even if the child is represented by counsel. Yeah. Well, that's great. And how did it turn out at the House of Delegates? Overwhelmingly approved. Well, that'll be exciting to see how that progresses. All right. And now there's a resolution that CJS worked very closely with the MBA on, speaking to pretrial and risk assessment tools. Would you tell us about that one, Steve? Sure. This was resolution 700, and you're exactly right. It originated with the National Bar Association working very closely with immediate past chair, April Frazier Kamara. And I should say was supported not only by CJS, but also by the section of civil rights and social justice. And it addressed the problem that is becoming more and more important throughout the country. The criminal justice section and other parts of the ABA in the past have been justifiably concerned about pretrial release decisions some of them being based on bail systems that mean people who don't have money to get out end up being detained, and often based on judges' views that may be affected by racial bias, explicit or implicit. And in response to the concerns about pretrial detention decisions being biased in some way, a lot of jurisdictions have gone to what we call pretrial risk assessment tools. And the idea is that you develop an algorithm, a mathematical model that plugs in a lot of things that purport to tell us who it is that is a risk of flight or a risk of continuing crime, and therefore probably deserves to be detained pending trial more than people who are lower risk. The difficulty is that in many, if not most, and probably most of these algorithmic systems, The factors that are built in are all factors that have the same biases that we were worried about in the past built in because they're based on data that was generated based on past criminal justice records. Many of these pretrial risk assessments focus on things like when was a person first in contact with law enforcement? What age? What's the criminal record of the person look like? And these decisions, these factors, I should say, all have the potential of being biased against people because of race, national origin, poverty. And our resolution said that basically jurisdictions should be open to transparent about what is it that is in these risk assessment tools? What are they composed of? What steps have been taken to assure that the past effects of discriminatory decisions, whether conscious or unconscious, have been dealt with in developing the risk assessment tools? And resolutions suggest that they should be monitored on a regular basis to see what the effects are. Are the effects neutral? Are the effects continuing to suggest that there are biases that are troublesome in the way in which pretrial decisions are made. And that if the 
if the assessment tools can't be um, improved to the point where bias is, is, if not completely eliminated, greatly reduced, that they shouldn't be used. This is a very important resolution, and it's a reminder that you can't substitute discretion with mathematics and expect that you're going to get an improved system if the mathematics are based on decisions that all reflected law enforcement discretion, judicial discretion, prosecutorial discretion, and the like. So basically, the resolution could be understood to say the data, or rather the pretrial risk assessment tools are only as good as the data put into them. And those data have to be carefully looked at because of the fact they're derived from what most people believe are racially and economically biased decision-making in the past. Yeah. And Steve, I'm curious, because if I recall correctly, I believe our pre-trial committee worked a lot on this, and there's a lot of the work of the section that was able to be moved forward in the form policy. This policy was bubbling up through several committees in the criminal justice section, racial justice committee, pre-trial committee, and it was a big, big issue for our immediate past chair. April really cared about this issue. And although we worked hand in glove with the National Bar Association and basically said, well, they took the lead, they came and said, we need to do this. I think it's fair to say that it wouldn't have gotten done had CJS not worked shoulder to shoulder with the National Bar Association with a determination. This was going to get done. It was going to get done in time for the mid-year meeting. And, and it did get done. Yeah, and we've certainly had a number of CJS members on this podcast that have shared their work in risk assessment tools and their concerns and the advocacy that they're doing there. So certainly something that our listeners can feel familiar with knowing that the section was engaged. So this is a nice tie into what we've been hearing come up on the podcast as well. So that's great. And how did it do at the House of Delegates, Steve? It went through with overwhelming support. It seems like there's certainly been a lot of recognition through this most recent racial justice movement to root out bias. So another great example of that. Thank you, Steve. Now, there are a couple of resolutions that um, had a different sort of experience in the House of Delegates than we sometimes talk about. Resolution 800 and 801, all within a similar umbrella around elections and voting. Steve, can you tell us about these resolutions and then what happened at the House of Delegates? I can. The group in the American Bar Association that runs the mid-year and the annual meeting in terms of when we get together, how it's going to be organized, is the Rules and Calendar Committee. And they set certain deadlines for the submission of resolutions. The sections in the ABA have a deadline and other entities, state bar associations, local bars have different deadlines. Well, it turned out that shortly before this meeting, there was a concern raised about the fact that what people had expected to happen, which was Congress to enact certain laws relating to voting, it just didn't get done. And so there were these two resolutions, 800 and 801 
were late filed resolutions. They were after the deadline and it required a decision by rules and calendar, would they calendar these? They agreed to calendar them, but there was, as to each, a motion to postpone. And the nobody challenged the merits of the resolutions. The concern was that they were late, that people really were seeing them in one case, a couple days before the actual vote in the House of Delegates. And in one of the resolutions, it really didn't get finalized until the night before the House of Delegates was supposed to meet. So the first one addressed two of the bills that have gotten a lot of attention in Congress, which are bills to assure that states don't enact draconious voting laws that make it difficult for individuals and groups to get their people out to vote. And it's not a complex resolution. It urges governments at every level, federal, state, local, territorial, and tribal governments, to preserve and protect the right to vote in U.S. elections. And the resolution indicated the ABA's opposition to laws and regulations that have the purpose, intent, or effect of restricting voting rights, which are the core of our democracy. So the resolution was looking at protecting, for example, election officials from harassment. It was looking at things like state laws that reduce the number of polling places, state laws that reduce the number of drop boxes for votes, anything that in the past didn't appear to be problematic in terms of voter fraud, but changes were being made with the either the purpose, intent, or the effect of making it more difficult for people to vote. This resolution took a very strong view that that is anti-democratic, that is against the core of our democracy, and that it's important for jurisdictions to expand the ability to people to vote, not to contract that ability. So the motion to postpone because of lateness, that was the only ground, failed. There were 98 votes to postpone and 200 votes against. When the resolution was actually voted on on the merits, the vote was 290 in favor and 39 opposed. So it was clear beyond any dispute that the merits were um, strongly approved. There was a third of the House that wanted more time. Okay. And then does that also speak to the Electoral Count Act, Steve? 801 dealt with the aftermath of January 6th um, of 2021, when we had the incident at the Capitol. Whether you call it an insurrection or something else, not important for the purpose of this resolution. The understanding had been that there was a bipartisan belief based on what happened on January 6th and the debate afterwards about what the Electoral Count Act, which was enacted long, long time ago, what it actually meant, what the right interpretation of it was. It's hard to imagine that Congress was assembling and that there was, after a hundred more or more years, there was a disagreement about how we're supposed to count the votes that come in from the states. And so when the folks who ended up drafting this resolution, it was put forward by the Standing Committee on Election Law, the section of Civil Rights and Social Justice, 
in the criminal justice section, when we realized that Congress was going to recess, Congress was not going to have this resolved before the mid-year meeting, we adopted this resolution, which urged Congress to amend the Electoral Count Act to include several provisions regarding the role of the vice president, to make clear the vice president and he or she is there only to count votes, not to change the result of elections, and to make clear a new procedure on objections to a state's electoral count or its electors. And there was an overall urge Congress to amend the Electoral Count Act to clarify and modernize its language and structure. I mean, it is a scandal that here we are in 2022, and we still don't know exactly how we're supposed to count votes after a presidential election. And this resolution said that, come on, let's get this done. Whether you're a Republican, Democrat, or Independent, you ought to want to know what the right procedure is. Now, there was a motion to postpone here, and it had probably almost half as many people wanting to postpone. The vote was 270 against postponing to 56 in favor. I think the feeling here was this was more discreet, more immediate, that it emerged from an event that many people thought were tragic. So fewer people were willing to delay. And in the end, on the merits, this resolution went through by a vote of 305 in favor and 19 opposed. Okay. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you for all that background and for your report on how it went. And I, just in case our listeners haven't joined us for past episodes or something that we haven't spoken to, you've spoken to what the resolutions actually say, but what are the materials that delegates receive to help them prepare for these discussions and for debate at the House delegates and for voting? Well, what we get ahead of the meeting is we get the draft of the resolution, which we call the black letter. And that, by the way, is all that the House of Delegates ever votes on. We also have a report that accompanies every resolution, and the concept of the report is it explains and elaborates on the black letter. The House of Delegates, though, never approves a report. It is not the policy of the American Bar Association. Only the black letter is. So those, as to every resolution, it's a resolution report, and then there's often an email chain of delegates writing, suggesting that maybe there could be some changes and asking whether or not the lead section on a resolution would be willing to consider alternative language. And often we are. And there's changes made, which is why I mentioned as to, for example, resolution 700. It was actually revised prior to a final vote. And that's pretty much what we see. Sometimes individual delegates will write long emails urging their colleagues in the House to support resolutions, and no rules or regulations on that. People, if they really have strong feelings, are free to express those feelings as they wish. We've had a tradition of a breakfast right before, in the morning of the House of Delegates meeting, a tradition of the litigation section sponsoring a breakfast. Now, this is a little harder to do in a virtual world, but yeah. world, what, <laughs> what happened was we all gathered in our room, breakfast, real breakfast was served. The truth was, if there wasn't bacon, people complained. 
That was seemed to be the only thing people complained about. And we went around the room and we went essentially anybody present and members of every section and often members of the of state bars, local bars would be there to comment on their resolutions. And we would talk about them briefly and we could answer questions if anybody had questions. And often there you would learn if there was going to be any opposition and maybe be able to talk to people who might think they want to oppose and see whether there are ways to satisfy them. That was a lot harder in the virtual meeting. And I, I should mention one other thing. House of Delegates meets on Monday and sometimes it extends into Tuesdays. The Sunday before the Monday meeting, there's a section officers conference in which the sections of the ABA, all of us, our representatives, if we're physically present, we have a huge square table or rectangular table. We sit around and we go through every resolution in the book and see who's supporting, whether there's any opposition. We did that essentially virtually for this meeting. And I think it worked not quite as well, but it worked pretty well. The idea of that is just give us at least a day's notice if there are going to be any problems. Yeah, right. Certainly a different experience in a virtual setting, but a great look behind the curtain there for us and for our listeners. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for giving us that inside look. Well, and listeners, as usual, if you're interested in getting involved in policy work with the section, it's best to get involved with a committee. And I will link those in our episode summary or also just to reach out to staff at CJS to let us know what you're interested in and we can help connect you. So once again, listeners, this was our CJS delegate and former CJS chair, Steve Salzberg the Wallace and Beverly Woodbury University professor and co-director of the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program at George Washington University School of Law. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod. <laughs>